So regenerative finance is sort of the the initial idea that you can take financial systems and instead of make them extractive, make them regenerative, right? So how do you think about how do you build a system, right? So making going back to the example we were talking about with the forest in Brazil's, okay. how do you make it so that that forest is worth more money standing than it is cut down? This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Bing X and Angel Block. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. What is up, my friends? I am your host, Charlie Schramm, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of Untold Stories, where together, twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, Bitcoin OGs, those who are leading the charge in some of the, the coolest projects that we're seeing not just come out of like crypto, but pretty much out of any industry in the world right now, the coolest most forward-thinking progressive technologies that are going to change the every way we do things are coming right out of our industry right now. And we're getting to talk to a lot of those really, really cool people. Phil Fogel, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. Thanks for having me. I just wanted to like uh, just say hello and introduce you first really quick. And then I'll tell you about uh, an article that I was reading this morning. Um, you are the chief blockchain officer and the co-founder of Flow Carbon, managing partner at Corner Three Ventures, a seed and early stage angel investing firm. Previously, you were the head of strategy at Bitgreen, uh, and so it sounds like you've been really uh, straddling two two industries and two. I wouldn't even say industries; like one is a almost like moral compass, right? Like making the earth better and and making sure that we have the ability to live here forever. But you're also giving crypto uh, an amazing killer use case, which is really great. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's funny. Back in 2017, I was working with some other people to try and bring proof of stake to the forefront of consensus mechanisms into the forefront of people's mind and trying to build an infrastructure company that was just building, just doing proof of stake. And most people were laughing at us, right? Because at the time, the merge was had been yeah. six months away for years, and it was never going to happen, and proof of stake was not necessary, and especially because the long tail of proof of stake coins were all shit coins, right? You had all of these like random, like, oh, this is a coin that needs its own chain to do travel bookings and all sorts of other nonsense like that. And so it was really hard to convince people that proof of stake was something that was really important and meaningful. And now, luckily, we've actually completed the merge, and that narrative is sort of run its full cycle. I was just going to say, like, narratives are everything. And it's almost like uh, how we view the industry, how how everyone else views us, but how we kind of view ourselves from, like, outside looking in. And I agree that a lot of those narratives that create this, like, tribalism is just, like, a really negative thing. Um, but speaking of, uh, speaking on that, on that front, so I was reading this morning in Bloomberg that, um, uh, Lulu won the uh, re-election in uh, in Brazil, and one of the the biggest reasons that he won, uh, he came back like he was in jail, I think, for like corruption or something like that. But and he won the the, the election there, the presidential election, and he and one of the biggest things he ran on, um, which which is, was a huge deal for me because it's one of the most populated and one of the most you know I think it's part of like the G twenty or something like that. Brazil is that you had him run on the fact that he's going to continue protecting the Amazon rainforest. And to, to be such a, a for like usually in the elections, you have the economy or inflation or some 
political or religious something or whatever, but to have that as such like the biggest thing. And I was like trying to figure out why. And the articles kept talking about how the Amazon rainforest is this like uh, carbon sink. And I kept seeing this term carbon sink and I didn't understand what that was. And then doing the research into the show today, I started to put all these dots together. So, I mean, what is a carbon sink? Yeah, so the Amazon rainforest is one of the largest carbon sinks in the world. And what that means is that carbon has been being trees, the photosynthesis cycle pulls carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere naturally. It's part of how just trees survive. And then that carbon is moved into the trees and into the soil and into and then pushed further down into the earth. And so they are natural carbon sinks. And so when you destroy these carbon sinks, not only are you removing the ability for them to continue to to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, but you're actually releasing back into the atmosphere all of that carbon dioxide potentially that had been removed in the in the past. I mean, you're talking about they equated it to the all the emissions of Germany literally being not even going into the atmosphere, but being sucked up by the Amazon rainforest. Like that's the equivalent. Yeah. And what happens in the Amazon historically is that the land is being sold off very cheaply and it gets slashed and burned to make room for cattle to graze and for other use cases where that carbon sink is obviously destroyed, but it's much more profitable for that land to be used. You can buy like an acre of land for something like 200, 250 bucks an acre in the Amazon. And you can make by turning, by logging it and then using it for cattle grazing, you can make $1,500 an acre. So the economics are just backwards. And so what we really want to do and what they have this mission behind carbon credits in general is how do you make these forests more valuable standing than being slashed and burned? So I didn't understand this whole, we were, I was having a, a conversation with someone the other day and I really, I'm trying to understand this whole carbon credit marketplace, uh, like blockchain aside, just the idea you have, you have countries that emit a certain amount of carbon dioxide and essentially that equates to like a scoring system. And the world governments have committed to like being at a certain amount where I'm butchering it already. <laughs> yeah. So there's the Paris agreement, um, which was entered into by a lot of governments basically said, we're going to keep, take account of all of our emissions and we're going to go on a path towards reducing them over time to get to a place where we're stop emitting carbon into the atmosphere. And then once we're done with that, what you have to remember is there's still all that carbon that has already been emitted into the atmosphere yeah. that has to be removed from the atmosphere. And so what a carbon credit actually is, is it's a way for as countries and as companies and even individuals move towards a path to decarbonizing their activities, right? In the interim, you can basically create a, a system, a capitalist system, whereby I can't decarbonize my activities today, but I can pay for someone else to either remove or prevent carbon from being released somewhere else in the world. And so you can create a system whereby you create a economic value that's associated with that forest standing or a new forest being planted, or in the case of tech removals, actually carbon dioxide being sucked out of the atmosphere. And you get people to pay for that using carbon credits. And so a project gets done that, excuse me. So what something happens is, you know, there's a land under threat in Brazil, right? Yeah. In the Amazon rainforest. And so instead of that land going for sale to somebody who's going to slash and burn it for cattle grazing, instead, you basically say, I'm going to buy this land and preserve it. And I'm going to get, in order to pay for that preservation, I'm going to have carbon credits issued against it. And then those carbon credits can be sold to others who are emitting carbon into the atmosphere, who use it as an offset. So I emit 100 tons of carbon into the atmosphere, I buy 100 tons of carbon credits, and now I can make a net zero claim. 
that I am carbon neutral. So is it a, you think it's a benefit? I mean, it's it, you, how that came about seems so interesting, but over, over the long term, do you think that having this sort of marketplace will benefit kind of the way we need to all move forward as, as a human, as like the world population? Yeah. I mean, we have to decarbonize. That's sort of the first and foremost thing. But on top of that, we also have to preserve the natural carbon sinks. If we continue to cut down existing forests, we're, there's no chance to staying on that pathway to one and a half or two degrees of warming that we've sort of agreed to is, is the maximum that we can get to to continue to have the civilization that we want to have. And so we need to preserve the carbon sinks. We also then need to do removals. And so having this marketplace where people can put a value on the activities of others who are preserving the natural carbon sinks and doing carbon removal activities is functionally important because it's a capitalist solution to this problem where governments you know, have for 20 years been talking about coming up with solutions at a governmental level. They've largely failed at doing so. And so now there's a, we're introducing or have, there's been around for a little while now this market-based solution that's finally picking up steam. And part of that, as we were talking about earlier, is, is just a narrative and timing, right? All of a sudden, in the last few years, there's been a real sea change in activities and viewpoints and narrative around climate change, where most people, there aren't that many climate deniers anymore, right? There are people who don't care and who yeah. don't think that we should be focused on this, but there aren't that many people who say, well, that's not true. And so there's been that sort of mindset change. And there's a lot of activity now where people are saying, well, this is really a problem. How do we solve it? What can I do? What can I do to actually have an impact? And the carbon markets are one of the ways where you can have an impact and people are starting to vote with their, you know, actually voting. So like what you saw in Brazil, but also voting with their dollars and saying to corporations, we want you to be carbon neutral. In fact, we're not going to support you. And the investor community is really driving a lot of this narrative. So you see um, like Larry Fink from BlackRock, right? So the largest investor in the world, they basically said that carbon decarbonization is what's going to happen. And are you going to lead or will you be led? And that was, he put that, I think, in his shareholder letter last year. And that's sort of a really powerful statement from someone of that caliber saying that this is going to happen. We all need to move here and move in this direction. There's a, there's even like uh, large hedge funds and ETFs that are the same way that won't take in companies, uh, large mega corporations that are not like on top of their emissions. Yeah, I, I think it was, I'm not exactly sure, but I think it was the UK, um, a group of universities in the UK who their endowments all said that they're going to um, basically divest from fossil fuels and carbon emitting companies. And so you're seeing that happen all over the place time and time again. People are starting to look at ESG as being much more than this like buzzword that no one understands and have it be much something that people are actually paying attention to and thinking about what does that actually mean? You know, that's interesting, the narrative component that you brought up there. Uh, I think a lot about this, right? Back in the 80s and 90s, climate change was still there. We still knew it was happening, but the narrative was very wildly different. You had like huge, and up until I think very, very recently, like the last 10 years, it's actually shifted uh, into more like, okay, probably because we see the storms happening. We see the the extreme. So it's like the conversation is more like how much is man actually causing to the contribution of this warming, not is it warming or not? Is that kind of like where the narrative is? I think so, yeah. It's it sort of, and I even saw it um, this past weekend, Brett Stevens in New York Times wrote an op-ed where he essentially was reversing his position on climate change and saying, wow. well, this is real. And this was after he took a trip to Greenland and he actually saw the actual effects of climate change and saw what was happening. 
And he now has taken this approach of saying, okay, well, we need not only these, you know, sort of left um, statist solutions to the problem, but we also need market-based solutions to the problem. The market has to come together and say, we want to solve this and we're going to create um, a system for doing so. And carbon credits is one of them. So what is the current carbon credit marketplace look like? Who maintains it? How, who decides who, how certain uh, corporations and things get added to it, the due diligence involved? Like, what's this process like? Yeah, it's a very complicated market right now. And that's because it was never set up to be a market, right? It was sort of, it sort of came about over time and got developed by NGOs and people who wanted to participate. It's actually called the voluntary carbon market because it is voluntary. There's no governmental statute as opposed to when you talk about um, cap and trade carbon markets or compliance carbon markets, where there is a regulatory statute that says this is how much carbon can be emitted. And if you want to emit more, you have to buy from other people who are emitting less. And those are traded on a market that was designed from day one to be a financial asset and to have trading capabilities. The voluntary carbon market today is almost entirely traded over the counter and is in traded over the counter by um, with credits that are created by large NGOs. So these nonprofit organizations called the standards, Vera being the largest one, gold standard, American Carbon Registry, um, they basically put out methodologies that say, if you do the following activities, basically creating a policy framework that says, if you do the following things and you provide the data and you provide someone who validates that data against what the activities that you're doing, we will issue you carbon credits. And those carbon credits then can go onto a market and be sold to corporates or other people who want to do it. Right now, that market, those credits are issued by the NGOs. They then live in a SQL database. And the access to that database is relatively limited. There are, I think, something like 3,000 entities worldwide who actually have direct access to the market. Most of the corporates who want to interact with carbon credits and use them to offset their emissions have to go through brokers and other middlemen to access the market. And so the market is incredibly opaque. There's almost no price discovery. So the actual price on carbon is unknown, the price that it costs to Oh, pollute. man, this is so early on right now. So early. But except this market's been around for 20 years. It's just for most of that lifetime, it's been a very small market. Like just a few years ago, the total size of this market was like $300 million. In the last couple of years, it's ballooned to be several billion dollars and is on pace to being a $100 billion market by the end of the decade. Because that's the size of the market. In order, if, in order for this to actually be a meaningful solution as part of the climate change solution, it has to go to being a very large market. And the infrastructure today for that market doesn't exist. And so I came to this market from the blockchain side, right? I was looking at this and discovered this during, you know, DeFi summer when everyone was building stable coins and thinking about what's the next stable coin that I can build and yeah. what, what can we do? Um, I was thinking about, could one build a green stablecoin? There's a great book called Sacred Economics by Charles Eisenstein that talks about how we need to change the nature of currency into to valuing natural capital instead of basically valuing warships. Um, and so I was thinking about it from that mindset of what kind of assets could you put on chain that is natural capital? And that's when I came across carbon credits um, and started really going down the rabbit hole of what a carbon credit is and the problems that exist in the carbon credit market. And I just, you know, the light bulb went off and was like, this is an absolute amazing use case for blockchain. And so for the last, you know, call it almost three years, I've been working on how do we bring blockchain to this market? How do we basically do what I call a technology upgrade? 
right? How do we move this from the SQL databases that are walled off and there's limited access to can access the market to creating an open market where everyone can access it, where standardization can happen, where data validation can happen in public, where there's transparency about who's using what kinds of credits. And so over time, we've been I've been trying to build out a consensus around this. And it's been a very interesting process and journey. And over the last six months, there's been a market change where it seems like this market is going to be one of the first markets to actually be built on blockchain and use blockchain for real world use cases at, at, at scale. And so all of these issuers of carbon credits, um, the, sta the big standards who issue them, are they actually are starting to wrap up public consultations about blockchain where they said, okay, we see that this is happening. We see that this is a technology that makes a lot of sense for this use case. And they've gone and done a deep dive and deep study asking for the public to submit um, comments, asking for companies that are working in the space to submit how they think it should be done. And what it's looking like is they're taking the, they've taken this incredibly seriously and the entire market went from, oh, blockchain, what's that? To, oh yeah, we see why this, why this market is moving here. Hey guys, we've been talking about Bing X for the last few months, super cool social copy trading platform where you can trade all sorts of cryptocurrencies, follow other traders, see their historical uh, uh, averages, how they've been doing and, you know, follow or unfollow different people and all their trades 24 seven. And what's cool about Bing X, other than the, the free money, which I'll talk to in a second that they're offering just to my listeners, but they also offer this super cool strategy that's like a spot grid. And they just launched like last week, this how do I explain it? A really, really cool strategy that now that I understand it, it's called an infinity grid and it's designed to avoid us missing out on the trending market when the prices start to run high, especially when we're not trading and we're not sleeping. You should go check it out. All the links are, are below and don't forget, they're also offering a 125 USDT new user reward. So if you're a new user, click the link below. Uh, go to Bing X and you get that free money. And on top of that, if you try out their social uh, uh, trading uh, platform and the different copy trading, if you lose $30, they're actually going to repay you back those $30. All the information is below. Check them out. Thank you guys for sponsoring the show. And thanks for my listeners for, for helping uh, our sponsors out. Thank you. Wow, this is... You know, I, I I sit here on the show a few days a week and talk to really some some brilliant people, and we get into some interesting subjects. But sometimes it's it takes a while to realize what the killer application is here, and actually what is the product of today that we're using, that we're building, that we're actually going to be potentially using in the future. And this is exactly the use case that I look for. It's exactly something that like marries two different you know, areas of conversation that we're talking about today and perfectly, you know, kind of marry them together to, to use the same word. Have you, have you thought about other use cases that you'd like to see and maybe how these potential like flow carbon credits could interact, maybe like a future DAO or something, and then what other type of environmental um, things you could, we could see out there? Yeah, so there's an entire movement inside, like a sub-crypto movement right right now called ReFi, which is all about regenerative finance. And it's an entire stack that's being built, this like ReFi stack that is, because it's an entire value chain for carbon credits that should come on chain, not just the spot trading of them. That's sort of almost the low-hanging fruit is let's upgrade the database, put these 
issued credits into on blockchain and then allow for them to trade and have have liquidity and access and transparency and price discovery the creation of carbon credits because if all a carbon credit is actually is data and it's and it's a digital asset from its like onset it's always been a digital asset there's no paper certificates there's no actual physical commodity that you need to settle against and so what's happening is is there are hundreds and hundreds of new crypto projects that are starting up that are thinking about how to build out the entire stack and how to support this ecosystem. Uh, it, it's actually amazing to see how many Web2 and even Web3 entrepreneurs are moving themselves into this space to think about how to build regenerative financial um, systems. I'm Not literally Googling regenerative finance right now, and I'll probably title the show regenerative. Tell me more <laughs> about this. You're blowing my mind. Yeah. Um, so regenerative finance is sort of the the initial idea that you can take financial systems and instead of make them extractive, make them regenerative, right? So how do you think about, how do you build a system, right? So making, going back to the example we were talking about with forests in Brazil's, okay. how do you make it so that that forest is worth more money standing than it is cut down? And how do you make it so that the communities and the stewards of that forest have a financial incentive to keep that forest standing, to preserve it. So that if I own land or if I'm an indigenous community in the global South and I own land, that I don't want to sell it for strip mining. I don't want to sell it for cattle grazing. I want to keep the trees standing. I want to keep that forest preserved. I want to keep the biodiversity. I want to keep the inclusive nature of my community intact. And I have a financial system that's built in order to do that. And so you can think of a lot of regenerative financial systems, right? So carbon is one potential area of that. You can also think about um, projects that do universal basic income, right? Impact market, which is built on Celo, is another great example of that. Um, there are also projects that are coming up that are thinking about how do you preserve cultural heritage? So like think about indigenous communities that have specialized skills in making um, objects, right? Or doing art that's because there isn't current an economic system that keeps that intact where, you know, the next generation is saying, instead of doing what my parents have done for years, making these specialized bells, right? I'm going to go work at McDonald's because I make more money doing that. How do you create a system where you can actually bring capital and bring economic activity into those systems and make sure that they're regenerative, make sure that they're not just charity-based, right? Because that's been the problem in carbon, in conservation of, of forestry for decades, right? It was primarily the domain of um, philanthropy. So you had rich people who were just going and being begged for money by NGOs to say, let's please keep this forest standing. That doesn't work at scale, right? And what we need to do is direct trillions of dollars to climate projects. We can't direct trillions of dollars based on the idea that it's going to be charity. We have to do it in an economic system where people are thinking about, I'm going to do this because it's sustainable. It's going to exist for the long run. And that right there it w is what the narrative was always about. I always, you know, I we would sit, right, as, as, as teenagers and have these conversations. And I remember saying, someone saying, you know, we're not going to deal with climate change until, like, it's an emergency. It's like Armageddon, the movie Armageddon, when they go and they, the asteroid and, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, well, that sucks, right? That means that we're just going to, some generation in the future is going to have to deal with this. And then, and then really, then the answer in response to that was, well, there's, there's no m monetary reason to like get involved. And also like as kids, we had no way to like really fathom how all this stuff was very early, but now, now there's almost like we've inserted 
we've injected capitalism into saving the world. Yeah. I mean, and if you think about going back to the original, I remember when I actually, this is a fun story for us. Um, when I first got sat down to be taught about Bitcoin in 2011, the people who sat me down, you actually know, um, Cindy Zimmerman and Ira Miller. Oh my God. Uh, that's crazy. Yeah. Ira yeah. and Cindy. Uh, yeah. Ira was uh, the chief technology officer of BitInstant, our Bitcoin exchange over 10 years ago. Yeah. And Cindy actually worked as a web developer too back then. This is like before they were they were just dating and before they were married and have kids. And he um he Ira was one of actually so we talk about tangents for a second. The technology yeah. to like do things on the Bitcoin blockchain just didn't exist. So like the the API to like upload, you know, like a spreadsheet and say, send this amount of Bitcoin to this address, technology didn't exist. You had to talk to Bitcoin through command line or through the very, very basic, like, like it was called Bitcoin QT at the time. And so I, we had, at BitInstant, we were processing like 30% of all the Bitcoin transactions and stuff like that. People were constantly buying and selling Bitcoin. We needed to do like automated Bitcoin transactions that could be audited by our financials, right? And uh, Ira built it all. I, Ira built all this shit. He built a lot yeah. of Bitcoin early and he's also the impediment behind like Gitcoin, I think, and GitHub coin and that, that whole community. Uh, I haven't seen him in like six months. I love him. But he's great. One of the early OGs like Roger and Eric and all, and all the folks. Yeah. And I remember Cindy and I were sitting down being like, we're going to tell you about Bitcoin. And like, we're going to tell you about how the financial system needs to change and how we're basically, be, we're, this is part of a revolution. And at the time, it was just the like core monetary thesis, right, which I really, really bought into. And I bought into it. And I was like, okay, this is the world has to change. Reserve currency is the way they're structured right now. It's unfair. And I, I started learning more and more about it. And as I like went through my journey, when at some point I was like, there's much more to this that needs to change. It's not just about changing the nature of how governments hold reserve currency and how the like the currency is issued. It's much more a function of how do we build economic models and use this technology to actually create systems that allow for you know, greater access and greater equality to the entire financial system. And over time, that became, that narrative morphed for me into, okay, it actually is more about ecology, right? It's more about the entire planet and how do we create economic systems that work for the entire planet and preserving the biosphere. I love how he described Bitcoin to you in such a perfect, articulate way. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 was, it, was a, it was a real eye-opening moment. Um, it was one of the, and then what's funny is, is that then Bitcoin crashed, and I was like, oh, no, this is all over. It's not going to happen. Well, you know, in the early days of Bitcoin, uh, and you talk about 2009, 2010, 2011, and we look at, like, solving problems. The problem at the time that needed to be solved was person-to-person -person payments. Pay PayPal was the only one in the room. And we all remember, this was over 10 years ago. PayPal was the only one in the room, and even then it was used by barely... It was hard to, hard to be onboarded. It was only American and UK-based, so the rest of the world didn't have access to it. Payments were very fractured. All companies around the world had their own internal payment systems, and MoneyGram and Western Union ruled the world in terms of sending money over borders, unless you did it through your bank, which most of the world, as we know, didn't have bank accounts. But Bitcoin really solved and showed for people why peer-to-peer -peer payments are actually very important. And like 10 years later, I'm very proud of like where the world is. And I like how now solving problems using this technology is where the industry is still going. 
I love that. That's what the point is and what you're doing. You mentioned uh, uh, CeeLo. We had we had the actually someone from CeeLo on the show like five or six episodes ago, actually. And it was it was awesome. Uh, so you're it's cool when we talk to folks who are building their projects on not, you know, Ethereum chains, basically. Like yeah. I like talking to people who are building on CeeLo or on Polygon or on Salon and stuff like that. Um, what was the other one that you mentioned that I want to research later? Impact finance? Impact market. Impact market. Yeah. Why CeeLo? So so there's a couple of reasons. One is at the yeah, so at the time when we were first started building, we decided we couldn't build on Ethereum mainnet, right? It was pre-merge and the narrative around the footprint of Ethereum was too great. And so we didn't want to have to counter that narrative. So we started looking at all the alt V alt EVM chains that we could build on. And Celo is sort of a perfect fit for this, right? Celo is one very, very early on in Celo's life cycle. They actually made a decision at governance level, at the protocol level, to offset the very small footprint that they did have using block rewards. And so they were already a carbon negative chain because they were over, they basically were taking more than they needed to offset in order to be carbon neutral and buying offsets off chain and retiring them. And so that was a real part of it. But if you look at, you know, Renee, who was on the, the show, and Marek and Sepp, who started Cello, their vision for what they were building is really very much matches up to. And from a culture fit, it was perfect because they think about regenerative economics at the at the heart of what they're doing. So the Cello, the Cello stablecoin was built with this concept that it actually should contain inside of it as a reserve asset, natural capital and having natural capital inside it. And so... To us, it was just a very obvious choice that they were sort of this like great place that we wanted to call home base and a great community that we wanted to be a part of. That's really cool. So I like, I like that. That I like that a lot. That's really interesting, and I like how it was kind of chosen completely to 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 be just very different and to do it that way. Yeah, and the global payments infrastructure that they're building in a mobile first fashion also really helps in this. Because if you think about, you know, right now, carbon projects are done at very large scale, right? I go in and I buy tens of thousands of hectares of land and I can have carbon, I can develop the carbon project and have carbon credits issued on that project. It goes to a project developer. The money goes to a project developer who maybe has some arrangements with the local communities to give them some portion of the revenue that's generated. But that needs to scale down, right? You need to actually have this be able to be done on much smaller local levels and being able to have those payments go back on, simply go back to people very easily and be traceable back so that you can actually prove that the money did go back to the community requires global infrastructure for payment rails, which Cello is building inside of the global south. And what's an example of that as on the smaller scale? Like how really can people be involved here? I mean, in theory, you should be able to, you know, in the full deployment when the technology is really there. Um, be able to take small forests, small parcels of land and say, I'm going to plant trees. I'm going to be able to prove that I planted trees and those trees absorbed carbon and I can get paid for that. And so you can do this at micro scale, meaning that individual communities in you know, any part of the world can go and plant tree, new trees that actually create get carbon credits issued against them. And there's another project that's really interesting, Open Forest Protocol. Wow. That's one of the goals of that project is how do we take what currently is a very heavy system for proof that I did the activities that I was supposed to do that create that should have carbon credits issued against them. How do we take that and use 
computer vision and use algorithms and use the ability for individuals to like just take pictures of what they're doing and have other validators take pictures and submit that into a system that then says, okay, wait, we can now use the information that we have to say a carbon credit should be issued here. So we want to reduce this down to the scale where individuals can have as much impact as possible. Hey guys, I want to take a second and talk to you about our newest sponsor, angelblock.io. It's about that time in the bear market that we actually have to take a look at which projects have taken the do's and the don'ts from all the previous waves, bull and bear markets that we've had and built out real decentralized projects that are going to be successful and take this blockchain and crypto world that we're into the next level. Traditional fundraising is very clunky and traditional investing in crypto is very clunky as well. I know I'm a VC at Druid Ventures. AngelBlock is really, really cool. And it's a new DeFi protocol that's solving not only the issues of fundraising for digital assets, but more compliance, transparency, real decentralization. They have on-chain governance, staking, lending, secondary marketplaces for the trading of tokens, all these different ways that you can actually interact with the startup and the token and the project that you're actually investing in. There's a whole community here. AngelBlock is that new compliant platform that's safe and easy to use in order to weed out all the scams. It's so cool. It's built on top of Ethereum, but it's multi-chain by design. <clears throat> They'll also be involved in the mentoring process. There's a phenomenal community that AngelBlock has built. It doesn't cost anything. Go check out the community. Go to their website, angelblock.io. Sign up to their email to stay up to date. You'll have a chance to win some really cool AngelBlock NFTs. And this is only for Untold Stories listeners. Thank you, guys. Do you think this will ever get to the level where, where just buying a piece of land, like you'll see, will this ever be a situation where... Um, it doesn't matter where in the world you buy the land. You can almost like just pull up a map and choose anywhere, purchase land. And it's like arbitrage and people are just going to seek out the cheapest land to plant trees because the money that they get back from this like carbon credit market would benefit, would benefit them. I mean, that would be awesome. I mean, that, that's a, that's an amazing vision for the future. I think that where you're more likely to see something like that happen is actually around regenerative agricultural practices where right now the way that we do large-scale industrial agriculture is actually very damaging not only to the soil but to the environment because we're constantly tilling the topsoil which is releasing the carbon that the plants that were previously there actually sequestered into the into that topsoil right and over time that that carbon gets pushed down lower and lower and if you till the soil you release the carbon instantly and right there are actually um, there's a really cool documentary called Kiss the Ground and at one point in that documentary, they show a satellite map of carbon being released into the atmosphere. And they're showing this to a bunch of farmers. And they say to them, what do you think is happening here? And they're like, well, what's the date? It's when all the fields in North America get plowed before planting, right? They get tilling. And that's when all this carbon is released into the atmosphere. And so regenerative agriculture practices create systems where, again, from an economic standpoint, it is more valuable to not till your topsoil. Right, either using low or no-till um, machinery, or to actually plant different kinds of cover crops, move into reintegrate cattle back into normal oh, agricultural wow. practices, and so it's a totally different system of agriculture that can be accomplished at the large scale, like the industrial agricultural yeah. systems, but even yeah. more importantly at the at the local level, where individuals who have small farms can do these regenerative agricultural practices and theoretically have carbon credits issued against them. 
right? And so you can create an entire dashboard system. There's another great company called Loam that's working on this that is building an, a dashboard system where a farmer can go in and say, if I do the following things, I will make more money by using regenerative agriculture because I plant these crops, I'll make this much money off them, I'll get these carbon credits for them, I'll get these water runoff credits from them for preserving the water table, down the list, and be able to actually make a decision that is driven by economics, not by, oh, I want to just save the planet, which people should do anyway, but making it so that the economics are driving the decision making. This is really blowing my mind here because I'm like thinking to myself, what can I do? I want to go out and you know, buy some land and plant a forest. And I've always wanted to do agriculture, but I don't really know where to start. But maybe this will give me the next step. Well, like make farming cool again. Yeah. By the way, I think Ira is a farmer now. Yes, he became. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, he's living down down south and I'm really happy for him. Yeah. I, you know, when you make friends early on in your life, that kind of the history brings you together. <clears throat> the universe brings you together. You either become like really close or really not. And so yeah. it's, I love that. Like, it's great. I don't have a lot of friends from childhood. So it's like I count him as one of them. Uh, good people. But. um, Wow, I learned a lot today. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, I learned a lot today because this has been like uh, this has been the conversation that everyone is having. Um, we have every Thursday I sit down with all my analysts and the writers at our at our company investor place and we because we put out these master classes and and all this research and and education and one of our <clears throat> and when the topic of conversation last Thursday was was this we're like and and it was like my partner Luke was like kind of stamping at the ground he's like who is using blockchain to save the world <laughs> like why are we not seeing more of this tell me what's happening and like all the analysts are like googling and trying to scurry around and get him the answer you know and so this has really been you've you've taught us so much today, but also I didn't know about the fact that Celo, uh was offsetting their footprint using carbon, you know, uh, using their block rewards. That is such a huge thing. I wonder if any other blockchains are doing anything similar like this. Yeah. So in fact, like I would actually say that there's almost all of the um, newer L1s are doing this. So near, for example, is doing it. Yeah. And they're and it's sort of become the I, I want to say the invoke thing to do, which is amazing, right? The fact that it's like the it's become table stakes, right? Everyone is looking at proof of stake and saying, well, the footprint is so small to begin with. Right. Remember when Ethereum switched over from proof of work to proof of stake, it was a 99.95% energy reduction in one fell swoop. And that was, I forget the exact number, but like 0.2% of global energy consumption was just reduced in that single day. And so these proof of stake blockchains are so, so much more energy efficient that it's not that difficult, it's not that expensive to offset the balance. Now, we we talked about it for a second before, and this is back to like, I, I actually do want to know the answer is, is like, will this always be NGOs? Will I have to call an NGO if I buy 10 acres here in Florida? How will that, what's, will there be, or will almost like, Celo can set the standard and then have individual like servicing companies do it. Yeah. So there are blockchain-based protocols that are trying to complement or replace or just sit alongside the existing NGO standards. So Regen Network is sort of one of the ones that's been around for a long time where it's creating, recreating the system 
for issuing carbon credits using similar methodologies or the same methodologies as well as new methodologies. Um, having those inputted, you input, you bring the data on chain, you bring the validators on chain, have them input all that information into the blockchain and go, and then carbon credits can be issued against them. So there are, you know, is Regen Network a nonprofit? Probably not under anyone's definition. It has a governance token, right? It, it's built on Cosmos. Um, Open Forest Protocol, same thing, right? They're changing the nature of this. You're also out of um, Hedera. Hedera has this, oh, yeah. Hedera has the Guardian. And so the Guardian can be used for the same thing where, it, you know, it's totally an open source piece of software that anyone who's in build on top of to say, I'm going to upload a methodology, I'm going to bring the validators, I'm going to bring the data, and then the carbon credits are going to get issued. We're still building all of this right now. It's launched, you have users, it's testing, it's it's growing healthy, we're in a bear market, so we have the time to chill out and grow and build. Do you think that we'd be able to build as much and as fast if we were back in like 2021 or whatever, whatever that bull market was? What was going on back then for you guys? I mean, we are definitely building on top of the shoulders of giants, right? What we are building could not be built if Uniswap didn't exist, for example. And what we're proposing to build and why we think it's important couldn't actually be, we couldn't get to achieve those use cases if Aave and Compound hadn't been built. And so I think that timing is everything. And so I think we're actually in the right moment in time right now to actually get this adopted, not just by the Web3 user base and the growing Web3 user base, but to actually get this adopted by the corporates who need to buy carbon credits and by the issuers of carbon credits and the global community that is like actively trying to scale the voluntary carbon market. It's cool too, because I'm not, you know, from a regulatory perspective right now, the eyes are on like stable coins and securities tokens. But there's no secure. I'm not a securities lawyer. This is not financial advice or anything. But I can't see how this would really be a security, right? There's no profit motive to owning one. Correct. I mean, there could be because everyone there is a, a viewpoint that okay people think that carbon credits are going to increase in value, and that's why some people would speculate and buy them. But that's incredibly healthy for a market to have speculators and to have speculators on both sides. And to have people who are looking at and saying, what should, to actually facilitate price discovery, you somewhat need speculators. And there are speculators in this market today. They're just not operating on chain and they're doing so in the shadows um, or without, without transparency. But we agree, this is not a security. Um, carbon credits are not treated in the off-chain context as a security. They're treated as a spot commodity. Very interesting. And with, in the system in which we've created them, we have no reason to believe, and neither do our lawyers, um, which we have many of, that there's any reason to believe that just because you create an on-chain carbon credit as opposed to an off-chain carbon credit, that it changes its characteristic as a commodity. No, it actually gives a really, having great non-security use cases for crypto and blockchains actually helps regulators create better rules around the securities part of crypto, which is what people in that world want anyways. So it net positive everyone. Yeah, totally. And that's where we, that was one of the things that excited me when I first started digging into the space was that this is something that shouldn't be, have heavy regulatory oversight. Yeah. And so we've been working with, you know, relatively closely the CFTC to talk about making sure that we're right about this, making sure that these shouldn't get regulatory oversight and there shouldn't be any additional regulatory scrutiny. Did you hear of this um, energy web token someone mentioned to me a few months ago? No. Okay. Then I guess it's <laughs> yeah. not. It's like when two people mention something to me, I always I'm, I'm curious because there aren't a lot of like real use cases for um 
for for what's happening right now. Well, I really appreciate you uh, you taking the time and and coming on Untold Stories today. Oh no, I have one more question actually. Yep. I, I I stopped using the research a while ago because I've been genuinely curious about this whole the whole world that you live in. But since you're doing so much due diligence on and you're getting so much data, like geographical data, uh, real economic data from very small parcels of land, like what these land can, what the land can do. The data itself is like probably amazing. And the beauty of it being on a blockchain is that those who create the data have the, a way to maintain the, their economic ownership and their, and their privacy. But do you think that there could be like a lending aspect to this? Because a huge, huge industry is like lending to farmers because like you said, they only harvest once a year. A hundred percent right now, carbon credits, you know, even if you own carbon credits, it's really, really difficult, if not impossible, to get a loan against them. And that's solved instantaneously on blockchain, right? You create carbon credits, you can theoretically throw those carbon credits into Aave, borrow USDC or die against them instantly. And as you move, as you move more of the value chain, the creation of carbon credits on chain, there's actually this whole concept of forward contracts and getting forward financing for carbon projects. And yeah. so we're oh, actually cool. actively involved in that as well and bringing that on chain. Uh, we're using a protocol called Centrifuge to actually, we did this um, about a month and a half ago. We brought the first forward contract on chain and created a structured financial product around it. So these are securities and they're treated as such because we're tranching them and we're basically um, tranching the risk that people have so that different kinds of investors can finally access this forward financing in the market. And the whole reason behind that is we want to get more money to these people who are doing the carbon projects faster and sooner so they can go do more projects. It blew my mind today. Phil Fogel, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories, Flow Carbon. Um, I love it. I appreciate it. And I hope next time I'm in New York, I'm going to look you up and we can hang out. Let's do. Great being here. Thanks so much.